Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, good evening. It's fitting that we're talking about light and darkness because we're trying to figure out our light and darkness. Even for our uh, people online, we're trying to figure out how they can see a little bit better. And we're working through all of those all of those things together. And so if you have your Bibles, we're titling today's message, Where Do You Walk? This passage was filled with uh, walk in light or walk in darkness. So this is the title, uh, Where Do You Walk? Is it in the light or is it in the dark? Uh, This past week, I missed you guys. Uh, My family was in North Carolina. Uh, One time a year, we do an annual fundraising trip where I go and I meet with the churches that really support us in the Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina areas. And we stayed with my in-laws when I was there. And normally when we go, uh, I've got really early mornings and really late nights. And so I'm on like kid potty duty. We got two little ones and we'll take them out to go to the potty in the night. So obviously we don't have bed issues. And one of the nights, all the lights were off, like you should sleep in a room with the lights all the way off. And we had forgotten that evening because it was late when we got back to have the kids clean up the floor. And children know how to lay some landmines for you in a bedroom. And so they had played with Legos that day, uh, which are God's death trap to humans. And they had Barbies in the room. Uh, They had their play dresses. They had little crowns and wands. And my poor little unshoed feet walking in that room in the middle of the night, trying to find out where are my children? Because it's not, again, the, the room that we have them in. It's in my in-laws house and walking through the house and I'm stepping on Legos. I'm like, oh, that felt good. And a Barbie's arm. Oh yeah, a crown. Picking up my kids and I stepped on something and I was like, I just, ah, Emily, where are the lights? So Emily's got to come in the room. We're turning the lights. She's like, what is going on? Wake up my kids. It's just never a good idea to walk in darkness, right? Very clear from this passage. And we know from humans, it's good for us to walk in the light. God even gave us the rhythm of the sun uh, and then we're awake during the day. I know some of you are working in the hospital, so sometimes You have to sleep during the day. But in general, God gives us the sun during the day for us to walk in and live our lives. And then he makes it dark at night for us to sleep. Well, God even made it so that we would walk in the darkness. It gives us this imagery from how we live our lives with the sun and how you and I as Christians should live our life with the son of God. And so this passage is really talking about where you and I daily walk. And so in this passage, what we're going to see is some things that we should do and some things that we shouldn't do, but it's not just a list of morality. It's all rooted in the motivation of the gospel. What Christ did for us, he wants to do through us. And so here's sort of a recap from last week. Uh, uh, our, um, one of our ministry associates at our Coa Brookline congregation came and taught. He's on the elder track and Tyler did a great job helping us see some practices that Christians should adopt. But this week focuses on practices Christians should avoid. So the two passages together work in sync. But last week was, what should we adopt? This week is what should they avoid? And then Paul lists three things in this passage. And by the way, this is not going to be a fun sermon for me. We're going to talk about some uncomfortable things in the room. And again, my job as a preacher of God's word shouldn't just give my opinions. I got to teach what it has to say. So it's not fun. Here's some of the sins we're going to walk through. Sexual sins, 
sins of the tongue, and covetousness. Sins that I struggle with, sins that you struggle with. And so let's see how Paul starts this section before he gets into that list. If you're taking notes, here's point number one. We're to walk like Christ. Walk like Christ. Well, let's check it out. Look at verse one. It says, therefore, be imitators. Can everyone just say imitators out loud? Imitators, that's excellent. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, when I was in seminary, which I spent about four years in seminary getting a master's of divinity degree, one of the most simple things that they taught me was when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you must learn what it's therefore, right? It's a very simple way to read it. So this whole passage is predicated on what happened before. And let me show you the motivation you and I should have to avoid or adopt certain practices. Let me show you this for a moment. It says that therefore we should live a certain way in verse 32, because God forgave your sins. Therefore, because God made you righteous and holy, verse 24. Because God made you a new creation, verse 24, and because God sealed you with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your access to heaven one day, because of that list of things, the author says, therefore, because of this, 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 and this, I want you to imitate God. And then he says, walk in love just as, here's the motivation, you're to walk this way just as Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. So in other words, here's what I'm saying. If you wanna take this note, I think it's a really helpful way to say this. Um, What God did for you, he wants to do through you. Very simple way to think about imitating God. What he does for us, he wants to do through us. And so how God forgave our sins, he wants you to forgive others. Because God made you righteous and holy by removing your record of sin and then giving you his righteousness, he wants you to live out this holiness through your actions. Because God made you a new creation, we learned in verse 24, he wants you to live out this new way of living for your good and God's glory. And because God sealed you with his Holy Spirit, which is like a guarantee, he sealed you, gave you his own presence as a seal, like an like a engagement ring promising you the, the marriage of heaven one day, just like he did that for you, he wants you to tell others about this good news so that they can receive God as well. So again, what God did for you, he wants to do through you. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse one, be imitators of God. Walk in love just as Christ walked in love and he gave himself up for us. What God did for us, he wants to do through us, right? We get that. We can move forward, right? Uh, have you guys seen the movie Pay It Forward? Have you guys seen that movie? It's just, Jenna, you seen that movie? Okay, yeah. It's a cute little movie, right? Um, and it's about this little boy named Trevor. He's 12 years old and he goes to class and his teacher says, guys, I want to give you a project. And that project is, I want you to change the world. And so all the kids come up with maybe a scientific way or a political way or educational way or a medicinal way to maybe change the world. But this little boy thinks well, what happens if, if someone did something good to me, rather than just doing something back for them, I pay it forward. 
if I get one good thing done to me, I'll do three good things to another. And what this little boy Trevor is doing, he's imitating what was done to him, he does for others. And that is the whole premise of this passage. The beautiful thing about Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. If it is, it's a list of do's and don'ts that we failed in, but that Christ was perfect in our place. And so we live out of these do's and don'ts for our own flourishing and the God's good design for us. And so that's what we're gonna see in this very passage today. And that motivation is very, very, very key for us because we don't wanna be just these self-righteous, moralistic, uh, law-giving people. Everything that God tells us to do, he's done for us. And if we do it, there's goodness for you and God's glory and others. So there's a shift that happens from last week's passage to this week's passage. The shift from Christ's self-giving nature that's there in verse two and his sacrifice on the cross for us is really in contrast to humanity's self-serving nature that we see in verse three. There's a contrast. Christ gave himself as a sacrifice, but then there's a self-serving nature that you and I have starting in verse three. And then Paul lists out three sins that describe the human heart without a relationship with God. And he lists these out. This is not gonna be fun for me to preach. It's sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. I think it's helpful if we just start out by saying we've all fallen short. This is not a morality message, but I'm really hoping that you and I can see why we turn to these sins so often. And if we can understand what the gospel has given to us, then we turn away from this and we start living this way. These three sins are the very antithesis of Christ's self-giving identity, which he's a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's the antithesis, these three sins of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. And this is the identity that Christ clothed us with when he brought us into relationship with him, this self-giving nature. And because we're clothed with this new identity positionally with God, we are to live out this new identity practically in our lives. So we are to live holy lives practically. Why? Because Christ's righteousness gave us holiness positionally. Does that make sense? So Paul's concern here in verse three is not this comprehensive treatment of sin, but it's a list of sins which you and I are most likely to be thrown off course by. So why so much focus here on sexual sin and, and, and language sin and greed? Here, well, here's why. Because sexual sin is the one place where pride and power and pleasure all meet together and are concentrated in. If sin gains control, sexual immorality is often the result of when sin takes control of someone's life. And language, our words, and greed, our desires, are also important to highlight here because they're often those two things are the gateway in which sin finds its entrance into our lives. It's when we want something that God hasn't given that we think we ought to have. And that greed leads us to ambition that tears down our families or our friends or allows us to cheat or lie or leave to get what we want. 
or become bitter in our hearts. And so we speak out against God or we say slanderous jokes against a certain political party or racial party or our spouse or our child. They're gateways for anger. So let's unpack these briefly. Again, not fun for us to talk about, but I want us to unpack these sins because mainly I want you to see how God through the gospel gives us something so much better than what sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness can offer us. Does that make sense? That's where we're going to unpack it. So let's do the awkwardness of working through the very first one, sexual immorality. That sounds really archaic, right? No one says, I was sexually immoral this weekend. Like no one uses those words, but why does the Bible use this word? Well, the Greek word for sexual immorality is just that word porneia. It's actually, in fact, where we get our English word pornography, and the Bible used this term pernea sort of as this really broad umbrella term that covers really any kind of sexual expression outside of God's good design for our sexuality. Uh, if you guys have something in your home or your desk called like a drunk drawer where it just everything goes in there, the masking tape, the duct tape, pens, business cards. You guys have one of those at your home or in your desk? It's just like the drunk drawer. Well, that's what that word porneia is. It's just that junk drawer term that means all kinds of sins. And the Bible uses that in scripture for things like promiscuity or incest or sexual relations with the prostitute or illicit sexual relations outside of marriage. It uses it for same-sex relationships and affairs even within marriage. We see it all throughout the Bible. And in fact, if we look outward for a moment at culture, we really see the same things play out in our society. And Christians too easily can adopt these sexual attitudes because of our surrounding culture. Um, if, we're, if you're familiar, if you watch movies or uh, TV shows or you're on Netflix, you can really feel that culture believes that sex is just a physical act. Do you kind of feel that? That it's just like this exchange of goods between two people. If you're hungry or if you're thirsty, you go get something to eat. If you want to have sex, you just go and do it. And it just feels like this natural thing. You just have to feed the hunger or the thirst for it. And on one hand, culture sees it like hunger and thirst. It's just a need that every human has. And so it must be met. So they say it doesn't really matter how you feed that desire as long as it's met. So if it's pornography or multiple partners or it's casual hookups, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, then it doesn't really matter. That's on one hand what culture says, but listen, culture, culture really doesn't have a working solution for all the harm that comes from thinking that sex is just physical. Like think about the pornography addiction that you might have or that you might know someone has. They don't want to return to it, but they feel like beat to come back to it. It's not just physical. Or think about the heartbreak that comes from breakups when, when you gave yourself fully to someone and then they walked away. It's not just physical. Think about the emotional and mental damage from people only committing their bodies to one another but not their hearts or their minds or their souls or their lives. People left, leave feeling empty. They, they see others and they see themselves as just mere vending machines, only there to meet a temporal need at a cheap cost, then walk away until another person comes along. 
is this really how God designed sex to be? Like sex is way more than a physical act. It's designed by God as a good and precious and wonderful thing. It's designed to be a physical thing, an emotional thing, a mental thing, a spiritual thing, and a very intimate thing that actually binds two people into a unity that reflects the unity that God has in the Trinity. Science even tells us that the chemicals, guys, that are given off in your brain in the very act of love, the chemicals that go off actually serve to create a deep and lasting bond with the person that you're with in that act. Like science even shows the theology that God's trying to bind two people together. This is why God designed sex to be enjoyed in a relationship of complete commitment that should last for a lifetime where one man and one woman don't just feed their sexual appetites, but they serve each other selflessly the way Christ has served them. And guys, that, that is why God calls out sexual immorality, not to just condemn and to give judgment and guilt. He calls them out in order to call them in to his design, to something better, something better than pornography or the heartbreak that sex outside of a lifelong commitment can bring. Now, one last note before we move on for this, um, because here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible doesn't just describe marriage as the place to fulfill our sexual desires. Like, what if you're single? Is the answer just to get married and then all of your sexual desires are met God's way? Is that what we're saying? Is that what Christians believe? If you want to have sex, don't do pornography. Don't do it outside of marriage. You have to get married and then everything is fulfilled for you. Married people, let me just ask, is that true for you? No. Why is that the case? You can look at modern marriage, Christian marriage, the history of marriage, and you can still see that marriage and sex doesn't fix anything. Lusting after others still happens. Pornography still runs rampant and affairs still break up homes. Why? Why? Because sex is not just physical. In sex, the actual act of it, we're actually wanting something so much deeper than the act. We are in sex longing or in pornography, we're longing to connect, to belong, like to be wanted and found desirable. In sex, we, we want to be seen and, and known and loved for who we really are and to have our needs considered and cared for. Guys, and as we've seen, these very elements do not find their fulfillment in sex. Their shadow is reflected in sex, but their substance is only experienced in their fullness in the gospel. Jesus, through the gospel, meets our longing to be seen and known and loved and wanted and to be considered and cared for and served. And it's through the cross that our deepest needs are actually met. And it's the place where we find our fullness and deepest connection with the one who only knows us fully and loves us unconditionally. This is, friends, why you can be single and live a full and satisfying life. 
because sex can't ultimately satisfy what your heart really wants. That connection, that belonging, that exclusivity, that care, that oneness, that intimacy. That is not ever solved in marriage or in sex. It's only satisfied in the gospel. For the real elements your heart wants that you think comes through sex or pornography or lust are only found already in what Christ has done for you. And you are fulfilled when you understand that and you walk in trust in that. Does that, does that make sense? That's why the therefore in verse one is so important because you and I can't, can't get our hearts to just turn away from pornography or lust or reading romance novels or craving that desire, that longing look, that wantingness. Our hearts want that. And that's God's design that you would want that. But you can't find it in creation. It's only found in the creator. Does that make sense, guys? This is so key for us, our, our generation, our, our marriages. Because I don't want our marriages to end in the typical statistic that our world is, 50% of marriages end in divorce. That means for in this room, the people that are married, for every other couple gets divorced. Singles, if you do get married, statistically, every other couple gets divorced. And it often happens because of, you didn't find what you longed for with that person because it was never meant to be found there. Only found in what Christ has already done and what he says about you and how he serves you and how he longs for you and how he cares for you, how he sees you. So sex is just a reflection. It's a shadow. It's important, but it's a shadow and Christ is the substance. Guys, this is why Paul, this is why Jesus and many others from history were fulfilled and satisfied as single they found what their hearts actually desired in the elements of the gospel and not the physicality of sex. They found fulfillment in the creator and not in the creation. You might say, well, Aaron, that's easy for you to say because you're not single, you're married. Well, I said, don't take it from me, take it from Christ. Christ and Paul and the numerous Christians around the world. Guys, this is huge for us to understand and we are to imitate Christ in this way, amen? Man, that's awkward. Can we just move on from that topic? Let's go to something way easier like verbal sin and covetousness, right? Oh man, here we go. So the root of both sexual sin and verbal sin is what? It's that, that word that I struggle to say often, covetousness. Covetousness is really just another broad term that really refers to any kind of inner drive. It's that inner lust to have something more or to have something different than what God has given to us. And that's why it's listed here with sexual immorality, but it's way, way more than sexual lust. Covetousness is actually what we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Adam and Eve in the garden were given everything by God. God told them there's this one thing you can't have. And they thought God was putting a fence around their happiness. They thought God was holding out on them. So Adam and Eve begin to covet thinking that the creation can satisfy over the creator. And in fact, some of us might think, you know, why did God even say you can't have this thing? 
I think it was to show them that that thing could never satisfy you in the first place. And so let me show you what can. And then God walks with them in the garden. But they were duped thinking the creation can satisfy rather than the creator. So they thought God was holding out on them. They wanted more, thinking that that more, that different would satisfy. And we do the same thing. If I can get that job, if I can finally buy that house, if I can finally get married, if I can get that kid, if I can get that promotion, if I can live in this city, if I can move to that town, if I can buy that car, if I can get my degree. And we think more, 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 different, different, different. And we all know the whole grass is greener on the other side. And we have this vision thinking that that's the promised land. And my friends, the promised one has already come. It's in him that the promised land is found. Amen? It's in him. And in the fullness of the reality that is what heaven is, my friends. Let's not be fooled. Now, let me take a side note to say, guys, it's not wrong to get a degree. It's not wrong to get married. It's not wrong to move. But if you think that that will finally fulfill you and and comfort you and satisfy you and give you what you long for, you missed it. And I'm trying to save you from heartache. I'm trying to save you from pain. I'm trying to save you from what I walk through and what Christ is trying to steer you away from. So do you see God's loving hand here? He's not just saying, stop sexual morality, stop covetousness. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not just calling you out. I'm calling you into something better. So to covet is to want something other than God to satisfy only what God can. The Bible uses the word idolatry to explain this. And so coveting is actually the sin that motivates all other sins. It's looking again to creation to satisfy the longings of our heart rather than the creator. So where is that for you? Where are you longing for more, for different? Are you hoping that's the promised land? Because the promised one has come that already supplies that in him. Let's, let's look at verbal sin. This is something I'm, I'm guilty of and I have incredible shame from the past. Um, I have used more racial slurs than I am ever proud to say. Um, I remember even being in the car with my friends in Virginia and screaming out at a person of color uh, words that are incredibly shameful for me to say. When I became a Christian and became a father of two children of color, broke my heart continually for what I said and the look on people's eyes. In this passage, I find that there's forgiveness and grace for me. There's healing for those that I've never even met that I said things to because I thought it was funny because I was in the majority and I wouldn't get caught. Terrible, heinous sins. And I find forgiveness and grace, but then I also find that our lips can bring life and they can bring death. In this passage, God is really giving us something here about the power of our lips and what they do in our lives and how they affect others. So verse four says this, therefore then let there be no filthiness, nor, then he gives a second thing, nor foolish talk. Then he gives a third thing, nor crude joking. He says, which are, they're out of place for the Christian. But instead, the antithesis, the antidote for filthiness, foolishness, and joking is thanksgiving. So let's unpack that for a moment. Filthiness, no filthiness, is this overt language, this overt hate, this degrading language about others, this sexual joking that's very unfitting for Christians because of the sacred design God has for humanity or for sex. That's why no filthy talk is to be among us, degrading language, sexual joking, 
because those things are sacred and precious. And that's why they're filthy to God because they're sacred to him. This is why we don't think it should be laughed at if we say a, a gender joke to belittle the opposite gender or a sexual joke about someone objectifying their body or how they look or what you want from them because people are made in God's image and they're sacred and special. That's why God calls it filthy. God also tells us in this no foolish talk. And that simply just that word means, uh, it, it suggests this idea of being void of knowledge or void of understanding. So for us, what that means is that you, you really shouldn't just give on a whole rant on Facebook or about things that you don't really know, just foolish things, things that you don't know about, you don't understand. And then you just say, here's all my opinions. God wants us to be informed in truth and understanding and speak from those things. It also means that we're not supposed to get in debates or fight with each other about just foolish things. I know like my little girls, they're fighting about which Pokemon is most powerful. Bro, that doesn't matter. Although it's Charizard. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Like it doesn't matter. It's just foolishness. It's silliness. How many of our fights with our roommates, coworkers, and spouses are just foolishness? You didn't do the toilet paper the right way and you didn't squeak. Can you shut the cabinets? Can you just do the, whatever the case may be, can you just park it this way? Can you just clean the dishes? What, it's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. We are just trying to get control or power to satisfy our hearts. And we're just using foolish talk against one another. This is what I referenced earlier. It's the third one in this sort of triune succession. And by the way, I think there's a triune succession with each of these, sexual morality, impurity, and then covetousness. And then this we see about crude joking and we see about foolish talk and filthiness. I think there's a triune succession because it's showing the opposite of the triune unity we have in Christ and in the gospel and in the Trinity. So it's saying, this is how we're not to live because this is not how God is in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that over and over. Three knots because this is the three that he is. Does that make sense? We see that over and over numerically here. And coarse joking, as this verse talked about, suggests that double entendre, that sexual innuendos that we think are really humorous or sly, right? Those racial slurs or the gender bashing or jokes, all usually done in this sort of playful way, but it sort of sows seeds of belittlement and slander and heartache. It's really often a passive aggressive way to retaliate against Republicans or or Democrats, against the educated or uneducated. We make jokes because we're just irritated and we retaliate through our lips because of what's building up in our hearts. And so we say these words to build our ego and we're seen as witty or clever to our coworkers. And therefore, we think it makes us more likable or favorable to people in our culture. It's just another way with our lips. We try to find validation and approval or retaliation where God through the gospel already forgives, helps, heals bitterness, and approves us. Humor is a wonderful gift, but it's not something we should use as a form of egotism or escapism, self-defense, or even done in harmful or belittling ways. Like all gifts, humor should be considered, does it, is it done in a creative way, an enlightening way, a restorative way, or is it done in a destructive way, a debasing way, an inane way? So next time you make a joke or consider a joke, don't worry about just being humorous. You, it's good to be humorous. It's good to be funny. I like to make jokes, but are our jokes restorative? Are they destructive? Are are they purposeful? Is it to draw someone to humor for the sake 
of their good or is it because of the opposite for someone else? Are we trying to step over someone or on someone to make a joke? So surprisingly in this passage, Paul offers thanksgiving as a catch-all description for the language that does fit a Christ follower. He actually tells us that rather than foolish talk and filthiness and coarse joking, rather than speaking this way, we're actually to be thankful. And guys, what we're learning from this is that sin springs up from ingratitude. Like Adam and Eve were ungrateful for what God had given them or done for them, we also complain and it shows up in our speech, in our actions, in our lives. Sin springs from ingratitude. And so what Paul tells us in this passage is for us to be prayerful and reflective and give thanks to God. It's an antidote for this sin. It's an antidote. And we often find this difficult for us to do. And so we often retaliate with our lips or we're frustrated with our spouse or our roommates and we begin to speak foolish or filthy or coarse language about them. Maybe we don't say them out loud, but we think them in our head. But maybe we can take a moment to be thankful and reflective of that person or that relationship. And so God is drawing us back to, again, the gospel. Reflecting and remembering God's goodness to us in the gospel keeps us away from sexual sin and verbal sin. Are we ready to move out of this section? I'm ready to move out. Number three, here we go. Walk out the gospel. Number three is walk out the gospel. For it says this, For you may be sure of this, he says, that everyone who is, this is really key, everyone who is or has the identity of sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So Paul's there, yikes, that's you, that's me. We have been sexually immoral, we have been impure, we have been covetous. And so therefore there is no inheritance for us in the kingdom. God is perfect, We are not. If we want to be where God is, we must be like he is, which is perfect. So this passage tells us that none of us can get there. It gets worse. Verse six says, let no one deceive you by empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, which is, which was Aaron. That's me. And verse seven, therefore do not become partners in this sins that we just mentioned. For at one time, here's the reason why we don't partner with the old, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In the Lord, in the Lord. Let me highlight that, in the Lord. With that expression, in the Lord, we encounter one of the most significant points in this letter. Paul is not merely saying these people believed in Christ, rather that they're literally in Christ positionally. This concept of being in the Lord is one of the most important parts of our theology. Of the 13 letters that this guy Paul wrote, he used in Christ or in the Lord or in him 164 times. This is ultra important in Paul's theology. This language is so important because it expresses the oneness and the identity that a believer shares with Christ. What is Christ, who he is, is given to us. Christianity, therefore, is all about our union and the blessings in the relationship that we have with Christ. And that's the meaning of this verse. So guys, see, in Paul's mind, 
just as these Christians he's writing to live physically in Ephesus, they also lived positionally in Christ. The uh, Ephesian terrain and the Ephesian culture, the Ephesian climate, the Ephesian values and the history in which these people grew up and lived their lives, that Ephesian world, it, it shaped and defined who they were. But in Christ, now Christ reshapes and redefines who they were in such a radical and beneficial way. The idea of being in the Lord means that Jesus is the ultimate sphere of influence or cultural landscape in which Christians live from and that were reshaped from and transformed. That is at the very heart, guys, and the very values and character and history and purposes that are Jesus's are now yours. And they radically reorient their lives. So just as these Ephesians were physically and geographically in Ephesus and that shaped their world, now they're literally in the Lord in the way that he is should radically shape and transform the way they live. That's why it's so important for us to understand what did Christ do for you? What did he do to you? What he gave for you is how you to live out. That becomes your new identity. So Koa, let me ask you, what about you? What shapes or defines you? Does the culture of being in Boston shape you? Or the position you have in your job define you? Or the parental or marriage status that you are in or not in define you? What shaped you most being in Christ or being in something else? Which one shapes you? And what Paul is insisting here is that we are to live specifically in this relationship with Christ. Remember, the Christian faith is not this attractive set of ideas or this nice avenue to follow. Rather, it's a deep and an engaging walk with Christ, so deep a union with God that Paul can only describe it as living in Christ. To live in Christ is to be determined by him, not our job, not our marital, our parental status, not even how we contribute to Christian missionary. If, if we're in Boston or we're making disciples, that's not where our identity comes from. It comes from Christ's life, death, and resurrection and what he says about you. Guys, in this passage is really, really, really clear. It says, if you are this and you live in darkness, this is the consequence, eternal separation from God. But I love how it doesn't say you need to act better or try better. It simply tells us that now, because of what Christ has done, you were darkness, but now you are light. And all of it is what Christ did for you that you must believe. Does that make sense? Christianity is not to pick yourself up by the bootstrap, do better, try harder, be more moral. It's that Christ did it for you and is willing to give you that record. And it's from that record, you live out that record, that identity. Does that make sense? Really key for us to understand from that passage there. Well, last thing we'll close down for this week. Number four, we're to walk out the gospel as we just talked about. And then we're to walk in the light of that gospel. Verse 8b says this, we're to walk as children of the light for the fruit of that light. Meaning if you really walk in the light of Christ and letting that identity shape you, then here's the fruit. Here's what your life will look like. You're gonna find and do what's good. You're gonna find and do what's right. You're to find and do what's true. 
Now, Paul's there for a moment. We're going to unpack that next week because this week was what to avoid. And then next week is more of what to do to kind of like unpack how to live in the light. This week is like, don't live in the darkness. Next week is like, live in the light. So we're going to pack good, right, true more next week. But it tells us in verse 10, how to live in the light is we must discern what's pleasing in the Lord. If I could take a quick minute in this segment, um, a lot of us make decisions in an incubator, in isolation, alone. And we are trying in our prayers often to try to determine what's pleasing to the Lord. Am I supposed to move? Am I supposed to stay? Do I supposed to get this job? Am I supposed to have kids? What do, I, do I invest in this blank? Whatever the case may be. But in the scriptures, all of this language is not you singular. It's you plural. We are to discern together what's pleasing in the Lord. So yes, your life is yours as an individual, but it also belongs to a body, Christ's body. So friends, if you're making decisions about your life and you're trying to think through what's wise, don't do it alone. Don't think in isolation. That gets you hurt and it harms others. Think about some wise counsel in your CG. Ask some wiser, older Christians, maybe about the thing that you're pursuing that maybe they've already pursued. And they can give you counsel to help you discern what's pleasing in the Lord. That's how you walk in the light. Making decisions alone helps you walk in darkness. Making decisions with the counsel of believers according to the scripture helps you walk in the light. Amen? Verse 11. So it says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. If you understand the Greek, which I don't, I had to read it, but if you understand it, it talks about not just expose the sin, but expose the sin to the light. This is not talking about, all right, let's call out the people today that sinned. Would you please stand up if you looked at pornography this week? That's not what this verse is talking about. It's saying you take sin and why our heart went to that sin and you expose the light of the gospel to it. You bring the design of what the person should live their life that's actually gonna be good for them. You expose them to that. You show them that, yes, your heart wanted sex, but really what did it actually want? It wanted belonging and exclusivity and, and, and serving and, and caring and knownness. And that's found in the gospel. We expose the light to the sin. And then it says, verse 12, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So again, that talks about not boasting in it, not foolishly talking about sin. That's why we don't rant on about the sins that we've done in the past or that we do now. Again, verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible then therefore turns into what? Light. Do you see the beauty of that? When anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And if it's visible, then what happens to it? It turns into the light. Do you see the beauty of that? Guys, when you expose your sin to the light of the gospel, to a community group of confession, you begin to expose that sin. It can't stay in darkness. It can't have a grasp anymore. And then that darkness, because it got exposed, then gets exposed to the light and then turns into the light. Guys, that's a powerful way to think about that. The sin that I dealt with, with pornography and my sexuality for years and years and years needed to be exposed and talked about and uprooted and understand why and what was I longing for? What did I desire? Why did I ravish through relationships in my dating time? Why did I do those things? What are the things in my heart that make me crave those things? Expose the light to it, expose the light to it. Why and how and what did Christ do for me? And over time, those things that I lived in darkness now turned into things that I can use in ministry. The darkness turned into light. 
And that's why this passage ends with this beautiful confession or some people think it was this like sort of hymn statement in a song churches would sing. And it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul is describing the process by which darkness is turned into light. And it happens, friends, when we're awakened by the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness and fulfillment that's found in the cross and through a relationship with him. We are to expose the darkness, my friends, of our heart. That's why we do DNA groups. That's why we do CGs. Not to call each other out in judgment, but to call each other into the better design, the better fulfillment of why you ran to that sin in the first place. We want to give you something better, which is found in this relationship with Christ. So guys, we want to expose our hearts daily to the gospel individually. We want to do it corporately. But then guys, we want to take this gospel to Boston, to our friends and neighbors, our coworkers. We want to take it to my beloved neighbor, Tom, that I had a relationship with for four years and Tom is not doing well. I've shared with you that he was my apartment complex, um, uh, a manager. We've been sharing the gospel with Tom for four years. He's not doing well. It doesn't look likely for him to pass through 2022. And over this time, Tom understood the gospel. And so now the conversations, do you know what it's in? It's about what's heaven like. He wants to talk about what it looks like, what's going to be for him. And this man that lived in darkness alone, wasn't married, didn't have kids. Mom passed away, just lived in darkness for 60 plus years of his life. Got a glimpse of the gospel for a few months. And then all he wants to talk about is what's it look like? What's it going to be like? What do you think Jesus looks like? And what's heaven? And my hope is in there. And Kyle calls him, I call him. And Matt and Jordan call him. We talk to this guy. And I'm watching this man. He awakened. He was sleeping. He was, he was dead in his sin. And then Christ shined on him. Because this is my friend who knows Christ gets to go on to glory because this church was planted. Because you moved into the neighborhood. Because you started. Guys, this is the gospel we want to expose people to. We don't call them out in their sin per se. We call them into the Savior. We expose them to Christ. We talk about his forgiveness and his love. Yes, we talk about there is a judgment for sin that's coming because they live away from God and God is a good, just, and righteous ruler. But this same just God who's angry at sin took the justice on himself. And we share that. We share the hope of eternity because this is powerful. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you.